mistake that international human rights organisations, lawyers like me, have made over the last 75 years is to ignore Western political complicity in Israel's crimes. And that's going to stop now, right? I hold no quarter for any politician anywhere in the world that wants to support a war crime, be it Israel or anywhere else. It's time to hold the political class responsible for what they're encouraging, aiding and abetting and doing. Welcome to The Big Picture, a show about the past, the present, and the future. My name is Danya Akkad. I'm filling in today for Mohammed Hassan. I'll be speaking with Tayyib Ali. Tayyib is a solicitor with a practice that encompasses criminal and civil law in the UK and internationally. He's a partner with Bindman's, a firm in London, and the director of the International Centre of Justice for Palestinians, a legal advocacy centre also here in London. I spoke with him about a slew of activity that the ICJP has undertaken since the 7th of October, including warning UK government officials that they may be individually liable for aiding and abetting Israeli war crimes, and supporting a lawsuit that will see the UK government taken to high court over its continued arms transfers to Israel. We also discussed where Palestinians will find justice when this war is over. Will it be at the ICC? Or will it happen in the Global South? Has the legal criteria of genocide been met? And if so, how will it be prosecuted? And how did Tayyib come to this work in the first place? Tayyib Ali, thank you so much for coming here today. It's really a pleasure to get to speak to you in person. Um, we've been talking for years, and this is yeah. only our second meeting in person, so I jumped on the opportunity to get to talk to you, so thank you. Great. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Great. Um, so we're speaking on the 7th of December, um, and last night, uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres essentially pressed the panic button and said what's happening in Gaza is a, a threat to international peace. Uh, the ICC prosecutor has said Israel must respect international law. And we've got, you know, uh, the International uh, Committee of the Red Cross president weighing in, which is kind of unusual. What's it going to take to protect civilians in Gaza? It's a really interesting question. It's a really important question because what we see is we have experts worldwide. We have organizations like mine, the International Center of Justice for Palestinians. We have commentators. We have countries even that can see very clearly what's happening in Israel and Gaza, and including October the 7th, but also Israel's attack on Gaza following that. And you have this, you have this situation where over decades and decades, international institutions, commentators that protect or stand up or promote um, Palestinian rights have been delegitimized. And they've been delegitimized by a really powerful state, the um, Israel, supported by its allies in the United States of America and United Kingdom to some degree, um, as well as actors in country state actors in, in Europe. And, and together, what they've done is they've created a situation of absolute impunity for Israel. And what does that mean when you say absolute impunity for Israel? It means that Israel can do anything it likes, and, and not I say anything it likes, not almost anything it likes, literally anything it likes. And the international community, mainly Western countries, will stand back or allow Israel to do that or even cover up some of the crimes. And so I, a simple example of that where this happened recently is, for example, um, uh, the shooting of Palestinian 
American journalist Shirin Abu Akhla, where Israel initially announced that it was actually a Palestinian gunman that shot her. And then America supported that position until very soon afterwards it became very clear that it was an Israeli gunman, an Israeli soldier that shot her. But the, in terms of accountability for that shooting, nothing. Absolutely nothing. And so when you create a system or when you create a position for a state where it can act with impunity and it can do what it likes and people that should be restraining it are actually encouraging it, supporting it, even to some degree complicit in it, you end up with a situation where um, the answer to your question is almost unknown. What will it take for uh, Israel to stop its bombardment and killing of civilians in Gaza? What will it take? And the answer is, to be honest with you, I don't know. I don't know. Wow, I didn't. I didn't actually expect that answer from you. I thought you might have had it all worked out by now. That's a. Uh... Well, I can. I can. I can. When 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 I look at the situation in Gaza, so when I saw what was happening on October seventh unfold, interestingly, I had to do a um, speech at the Labour Party conference on the Monday, and this was planned months in advance, and the speech then had to come in the context of October the seventh. And it became really important for us to decide, first of all, whether we even did it or not. And I made the decision that we would continue with the speech. And we had a room of about two, three hundred people. Um, and we, I had to present an argument to them about Palestinians, what next for Palestinians. And um, of course, you know, in, in light of what happened on October the 7th, that became a bit of a ridiculous speech to make. Um, but what I thought was really important was to talk about October the 7th in context of what that meant for Israelis and what that meant for Palestinians and how we got there. Mm -hmm. So we can talk about, for example, what's happening in Gaza now, okay? And you can ask the question, why is Israel attacking uh, thousands of people, thousands of Hamas um, operatives, whatever you want to call them, thousands of civilians are dying, thousands of children have died. And why is Israel doing that? And you can point back, as Israel and its allies do, to October the 7th and say, well, actually, the reason they did this is because Hamas broke out of the um, border, they crossed the fence, they came into Israel, and they killed what was originally 1,400 people, then 1,200, and now um, there's a question mark about the, the number, but it doesn't really matter what that number is because we know that lots of people died on October the 7th, lots of Israelis died. And we know that some of the action or all of the action that Hamas took on that day was in violation of international law. We also know that, um, particularly where the people that they were attacking were civilians. So we know that. So we, we can say, OK, we saw what happened, what's happening now, today, and over the last few weeks, and we know that was because of October the 7th. And that's where a lot of commentators stop, don't they? And they're like, OK, well, that's day one. Well, it's not day one. So I've decided that on um, October the 9th, my speech should be about... 75 years and what's happened and what's led to that position and I think that's really important and it's a really um, it's, a, it's a huge part of the conversation that's missing in many commentators and also unfortunately in the analysis by people like Biden and his advisors and people like Sunak and his advisors even to some degree by the board of deputies in the UK and the community security trust you can't start analyzing a situation unless you look at the facts you look at all of them and you look at them without a biased mind. And we know what's happened. What, what, what then led to why did Hamas and why did some Palestinians break out of Gaza? I'm just using that word, break out of Gaza, because they were stuck into Gaza. 
I, I'm not. I'm not going to comment um, in in this. I'm not making a comment about whether that was right or wrong. In the same way as I haven't made a comment yet about what Israel is doing being right or wrong. I'm just talking about um, an event and a cause, an event and a cause. And so we have 75 years of subjugation of Palestinians. We have um, decade over a decade of blockade of people in Gaza. We have. Um, a system of apartheid, um, state-level apartheid between Palestinians and um, Israelis, or Palestinians and Jews, um, in that region. And you have this situation, and you have uh, decades and decades of gifted impunity to one actor, a completely asymmetrical situation between Israelis and Palestinians. And that led to October the 7th. And so if you want to analyze that situation, and you're an honest broker in this, and I consider myself to be an honest broker in this, you have to look at what's happening now in Israel. You have to look at what happened, what's happening now, sorry, in Gaza, what happened on October the 7th in Israel, but then what happened before that? What, what led a group of people to get into a position where they charge behind? Let's, let's, let's put it in these terms a proscribed terrorist organization, because that's what Hamas is, according to many parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Some people consider them to be a resistance organization. Some people consider them to be a proscribed organization. Here in the UK, our government has prescribed them. So here in the UK, we refer to them as a proscribed terrorist organization. That's what they are. So what, what, what causes that? And I think this aspect of this discussion is, is, is really important. It's, it's interesting you raise this, because obviously your lawyer, the ICJP, is focused on taking legal action, doing something, you know, practical. But those 75 years, a lot of that, that's historical, it's, it's political. How do you interweave that kind of narrative, that, those facts, those, that many years, into legal work? Well, it's really important because ICJP is all about the rule of law, it's all about the principles of justice, applied, by the way, equally to Jewish Israelis as well as Palestinians, whether they be Christian or Muslim or of no religion or something else, right? And it's, it's, this is what we identified when we created ICJP or when ICJP was founded, was that we looked at the situation in um, Palestine, Israel, and the single thing that I as a lawyer, as I may, I'd say an activist, but a rule of law democratic activist, because mm. that's where I'm advocating, rule of law, um, what we recognized was that there was a system of justice which was weighted in one way and not in the other way. So you have a situation where the tiniest infraction of an Israeli person's rights, including whether they're illegally there as a settler, is dealt with with a harsh response by Israel. People are arrested, people are detained unlawfully, people are imprisoned without um, judicial process, people are shot dead, right? If, if, if a settler, on occasion is carrying out an act of violence towards a Palestinian, you often have IDF soldiers supporting that action. There's no way for that Palestinian to defend themselves. There's no recourse in an Israeli court for that Palestinian to say, my rights have been violated. Um, so that you have this asymmetrical system of justice. And what we try to do at ICJP is to just balance that. Right, And so we wanted to, because actually, by the way, it's not my job to do that. It's not ICJP's job to do that. It's not a small little NGO based in London's job to do this. It's the job of Western states. It's the job of um, the global south. It's the job of the United Nations. It's the job of um, states across the globe to do this. It's not my job to do this. But they're failing to do this. And so where they decided that they were, for whatever political reason, for whatever financial reason, for whatever geopolitical reason, for whatever self-interest reason, 
And often that might be the self-interest of politicians' personal pockets, sometimes I would imagine, right? Um, wherever their reason for not, for not doing something, we decided that we'd step in there. And so what we try to do, and it's difficult, but what we try to do is to utilize the law to create a system of accountability for Palestinians where their rights have been violated. And my view is that the only time you're going to get two groups together at a table to discuss a settlement is when they are seen as equals and when the international community applies the rule of law to them equally. So if you have this asymmetrical system where if me and you are having an argument and you are the weaker in the, well, probably you'll be the stronger one, but if you're the stronger one <laughs> in the argument, right? And <laughs> right. I'm the weaker one. Right. And I say to you, well, look, you know, can you give me something in this discussion? Well, you'll sit there and you'll think, well, what happens if I don't? Yeah. And if the answer to what happens if I don't is absolutely nothing, right. then why would you ever make a deal with me? Right. Right? It's, there has to be some equality. There has to be some leverage. And it, worse than that, if... If you're, you decide what we're discussing here is the violation of my rights and you're saying, um, well, actually, I'm going to continue to violate your rights because I can. And I say, well, hold on a minute. I know your big brother, right? And I'm going to go have a chat with him. And if I go and try to talk to your big brother and your big brother comes and actually gives you a stick to hit me with, right, then I'm actually, what, what can I do, you know? And it's that, that inequality that we try to correct. You know, I was once asked this question after Zipulivni, um, an arrest warrant I applied for for Zipulivni, I was asked, once asked this question by the Jerusalem Post whether I would um, represent a settler whose rights would be violated by a Palestinian, whether I would do that or not. Oh, and great my, question. My answer was, of course I would. <laughs> if, if a settler came to me and said, look, my rights have been violated by this Palestinian individual, can you find, a re can you find redress for me on that issue? Um, my answer was, well, of course. And you see, the Jerusalem Post published that as a real big coup because after a significant case, we're like, oh, we've got this Palestinian rights lawyer who'd represent settlers. You know, I spoke to some Palestinians about this, right, um, who, who actually questioned me whether I actually did say that or not. Wow. And, and the answer that I got from them when I said, yeah, of course I said this because this is what I believe in. I believe that every person, whoever they are, has the right to um, accountability and redress through the through the rule of law, they said, finally, we found a lawyer that knows what he's talking about, right? <laughs> who knows how to do his job. And, and I, I, find, I, find, I think that's, I'm really proud of that. So when I'm advocating for Palestinian rights, I'm not just advocating for Palestinian rights, I'm advocating for Jewish rights too, because whilst I believe that Palestinians should be able to live in a system of security, I think Jewish people should be allowed to live in a system of security. And what, we have, what we've got at the moment is a deterioration of that, where Palestinians can't live in security, but neither can Jewish people. Right. And the political actors around that are the ones that are responsible for that insecurity, and they're the people that should be held accountable for this. Um, it's funny you mentioned Zippy Livni um, because that's that's what came to mind as you were talking about how you use the law, you know, this this um, unequal unequal balance. Um, it seems to me that you've used the law quite creatively. Um, I always think of you as being very nimble in how you use it and apply it. It seems to me you use very kind of, I don't want to say obscure, but like kind of some loopholes and things to sort of poke holes and take actions to sort of equalize that balance. And Zippy Livni seems to be kind of the biggest example of that. So I wondered if you could tell us what you did with Zippy Livni and if you do use law creatively, if you see it that way. I don't see it that way, right? I'll tell you why I don't see it that way. I see my use of the law 
as the use of the law in an appropriate way and in a proper way, in a way that our governments, our law enforcement agencies, our Crown Prosecution, our prosecution services, not just the British but others, um, are failing us, right? I didn't invent this law. I didn't suddenly find some obscure, I just use the word obscure, I didn't find some obscure part of law that was hidden in some textbooks from thousands of years ago. I used law that actually should be applied across the board. Do you know what? It's the law that underpins a dem democratic system. I, I grew up in an orthodox Muslim household, right? And it took me a long time to work out what I stood for. It took me a long time to work out, is, is it Islamic Sharia law? Is it what version of Islamic Sharia law? Is it British law? Is it international law? And, and where I came to rest on this concept was um, democratic values that are supposed to be British values that underpin our system. So I am a Muslim, let's make that very clear. Um, but at the same time, I saw what happened in World War II to, um, or I didn't see what happened, I read about what happened and I've heard the stories as everybody else. I was going to say, else. you don't look yeah. that old. No, I'm not that old. <laughs> and, and, I, um, and, and you know, what, what happened to Jewish people in World War II horrifies me, not just Jewish people, other people too, in, in terms of the Holocaust and, and the Nazi outrages. That horrifies me, but it doesn't just horrify me, it scares me. And when we hear people saying, never again, right, never again, I feel comforted by that because I buy into that. Mm. And so what did the world do to try to make sure that it would never happen again, that people like Jewish people would be protected, that other minority groups would be protected. What did they do? They created a system of international humanitarian law, right? That's what they did. And, and I looked at that, that when I first started looking at this, I was about 16 or 17 years old, and I, and I looked at this law and I thought, do you know what? This is amazing, right? This is, this is rules that I can buy into, that I can understand, that I can advocate, that I can use to protect me my family, my people, whoever they are, whether they're Yorkshire people or English people or British people or European people, my people, people generally. Um, and, and because of my work now, people basically in every country in the world as it works out, as it happens. But, um, and, and, and what became, I became really disturbed about was that the more I understood these rules, the more I understood that it was a lie. Because if you would you want to know how many times people have been prosecuted for war crimes in the United Kingdom? I mean, you could count them on less than one finger, right? Uh, there's been one significant prosecution of a torturer in relation to a, a warlord in Afghanistan. But you'd think that with the kind of conflicts that we've seen over the last, well, since the world, since World War II, the last 70 years, mm. there'd be prosecution after prosecution after prosecution. There, there isn't. Right. There isn't. And that worries me. So this, these obscure laws that we're talking about, they're obscure because why? Because our politicians don't believe in them. It's lip service. It becomes a tool for them to hit African states and Asian states over the head with the Middle Eastern states, you need to be like us, look at these brilliant laws we've made, but they don't live by them. So that's where this, this sort of I um, um, say, if you like, interesting, obscure creativity comes from. It comes from our basic values, our basic legal system that unfortunately, for self-interest and global positioning, um, but not in the interest of the people, our governments and our politicians have turned a blind eye to. Do you ever feel disparaged, you know, given, given that, given that a lot of the rule of law maybe is a bit of lip service? 
do you ever feel like, you know, what am I doing? Or do you, I, the way I see it, you're poking, you're poking little by little by little and just trying to cut away at that. Is that what you're doing? Or do you ever? No, because we, we save lives, right? We save lives and that's really important. When, when, I, when I started this course when I was 16, 17, and I decided that I would be doing this work all that time ago, um, I managed to somehow do this work all that time ago. So um, I had two objectives. One was to save lives, and the second one was to stop people being harmed. And that was it. Not, not, not the Muslim community, not the Jewish community, not the non-religious community, just people. people. Just people. Mm -hmm. And I felt that we are in this period of, um, you know, I, call, I, I kind of, as a kid, gave it a stupid name. I called it the blind enlightenment, right? Where we knew everything but closed our eyes to it. And we know that when we fire a bomb, we kill people and it hurts them. We know that's a, a mother or a child or a father or a cousin or a... Uh, or, or an adult or an old, we know that's what, we know that's the person that's dying, but we go, ah, let's just not look at it, right? And let's not do anything about it. Let's buy some more oil, let's take some more oil, right? Um, let's make sure that everybody in Britain can afford an iPhone, and let's have, you know, slavery factories in China, and let's not worry about where it comes from. This, this kind of um, way of, uh, this kind of way of, of, of looking at it is what I'm fighting against. I, 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 I'm not disparaged by it because we're doing it. Um, I can, we can, we, I, I say I, but I, I represent a team of people. Um, I've always worked in a team, a, a really good team, a team that I'm proud of. Um, we, we have, we know of instances where we've stopped people picking arms and going to fight on the streets. We've stopped that because we've given them an alternative route, a solution which involves um, legal, political, uh, accountability rather than military accountability. We've given people another option. People have asked me, will it work? And I've said to them, not a chance in hell. But it's better than picking up a gun and going and killing somebody, right? Because we've seen what happens in places like Syria and Iraq when that happens. You have the rise of groups like ISIS or you have the rise of groups like Al-Qaeda. Um, you can argue where there is no rule of law. People have, what option do they have? except for, for turning to violence. And my job, the way I see it, as I said to you, is to save lives and stop serious harm, is to give people that alternative. But whose responsibility is it if I and my team and people like me all across the world, because it's not just here in the UK, all across the world are fighting this legal fight and we're getting criticised for it and we're getting shut down for it and we're, it affects your career and your friends and your family. And then and, and when you get to court, you spend hundreds of thousands of pounds on a legal case and you know full well that the case should succeed and the judge says, ah, not today, thank you very much, right? Or there's some political interference just stopping you or preventing you or blocking you. And then you go back to your clients or your client group or people read about it in the newspapers and say, this is just a waste of time. Mm -hmm. What do you think they're going to do next? And I'll tell you what they're going to do. They're going to pick up a gun and kill innocent people. That's what they're going to do, because that comes from a place of real desperation. And do I, do I, um, do I explain or excuse that behaviour by the individual? No, not for a second. Not for a second. Do I condemn that behaviour? Yes, I do. But do I understand that behaviour? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I wonder if you feel comfortable, if you could talk about a time when you did steer someone away from, from violence. Maybe a, a specific example. I'm just curious kind of how it's worked 
I mean, the problem with a lot of the work that I do is it's confidential. Right, right? Okay. Um, okay. But what I will say to you is that, so I do work um, across the globe. So uh, one of the criticisms of lawyers that uh, do advocacy or litigation work in uh, Israel-Palestine is that why Israel, right? Well, you know, I have a simple answer to that. I can notch up the following countries, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, um, most of the Middle East, Syria, um, Muslim countries, Pakistan, um, Kazakhstan, I do, I've been doing work in recently, um, as well as some African states. So, I mean, I, I kind of like, I'm a bit of a globalist in terms of my advocacy work. And um, so, so with that backdrop, um, what I can say to you is that um, I was asked a very specific question where a uh, political leader had um, was in a position where they felt that domestic internal um, remedies that were available to them was nothing but violence. That was it, just violence. This is a political leader saying that. Yeah, okay. right. Okay. Um, and um, a political leader, not 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 leader of a country, political right. leader, right? Right. Okay. Um, and um, in that discussion. I, with my legal team, met with them and their group. And in a really hostile discussion, really hostile discussion, where I thought I was losing the argument because I was advocating peace, I was advocating legal political institutions, I was arguing about submissions to the United Nations, I was arguing about domestic arrest, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and was being attacked by people saying, that's not going to work, it's not going to work. And we went out after we gave our presentation we went back into the room afterwards and I was asked, well, we have one question for you, will it work? Well, what you're, with what you're saying, will it work? And I said, no, it won't work. But it's how you should behave as a political leader in this context and you should never stop fighting in that way. And that's the only thing that's going to stop you. If you care about your people in your country, that's the only thing that's going to prevent a civil war. Mm. And to my surprise, that's the route we went. That's the route we went. Did it work? Nope. Nope. But it stopped lots of people dying, didn't it? Hmm. And I can't say which country, what state, and what position, but it stopped lots of people dying. I have my guesses. We don't have to get into it, but um, you mentioned being 16, and mm. I really was hoping to get your origin story because, as I've said, we've talked for years, and I really don't know yeah. what inspired you. I know you came from Yorkshire. That's kind of all I know. Could yeah. you fill us in on on how you got to where you are? Yeah, I mean, I I feel. Like, if you ask me if I'm English, I'd say I'm Yorkshireman through and through. And I think, you know, growing up in um, the Yorkshire town that I grew up in, um, around with my, my grandfather was a person that came to the UK. And then, um, so my dad was raised here in, the England, in England. And I was born a long time ago, how it feels. But anyway, <laughs> um, but I really grew up with um, an understanding of what it meant to be a Yorkshireman. You know, really hard work ethic never stopping, seeing the difference between what's right and wrong. Um, e even more so than an Englander, right? You know, a Yorkshireman and an Englishman is, even though a Yorkshireman is an Englishman, it's still slightly different things. Mm. I used to joke with people when they used to do the Tebbit test on me, would you fight for England? I'd say, not a chance, but if you come anywhere near Yorkshire, I'll have you, <laughs> right? And that was like my um, sort, of, uh, sort of Mickey take about the stupid test in the first place. But anyway, um, so, so, but when I was around 16, 17, I was in college, uh, after I'd done my GCSEs and I was doing my A-levels, um, the conflict in Bosnia was happening. And, um, you know, this was my sort of, I wasn't brought up political, politically. 
I was brought up with an understanding of Islam, but I didn't kind of like, it wasn't like thrust down my throat. Mm. And I went to a school, mainly non-Muslim people and non-Asian people, uh, white English Yorkshire people, if you like. And um, so I didn't really have a political understanding about Muslims, about, about anything really in that way. But what I did do is in my college, um, I became chair of the charities committee. And um, during the conflict in Bosnia, we were raising money for um, Bosnian children that were affected by the war and, um, and children in need, right? And uh, it, was, it was just like, a, it was a cool thing to do. That's it. I mean, I'll be honest about it. Wasn't, I didn't was particularly involved in it. I just thought, yeah, this is what you do. And I remember wearing a gorilla suit and walking around the town centre with a bucket collecting money from people. And we actually raised quite a, a couple of thousand pounds, which is a lot for our college. And it's mainly because we were dressed in stupid suits <laughs> making people give us more or less mugging people <laughs> for money for this good cause but what had happened in my college which was really surprising is that it got known that we were raising money for bosnians mm -hmm. right uh, bosnian children for a doctor's aid uh, charity and um we were showing um nothing particularly graphic but just a couple of videos about what was happening out there and people saying oh, this is the devastation we need you know help and support mm -hmm. And the, what surprised me, there was a barrage of um, complaints from parents of other children in the school or other mm -hmm. teenagers in the school that were, why are we giving money to people abroad? Well, what? Like, what does that mean? What, are we giving money to people abroad? What does that mean? I don't understand. And um, I um, spoke to the, the head called me in, right? Um, I don't want to say his name. I don't want to embarrass him. I'll say the name of the college. But he called me in and he said, look, we've had these complaints. Um, people are upset about you giving this money to people abroad. Um, what are you going to do about it? I was like, what am I going to do about it? Well, I don't know. Right? I, was, <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'm raising money for people that are like war victims. Why is that a big deal? Mm -hmm. And then he said, well, you've got to work it out. And I said, well, what do you want me to do? And he said, you decide. It was a really important lesson. Just come back tomorrow and tell me what you've done. Don't tell me what you're going to do, tell me what you've done. So I had the choice about where to give the charity. So I spoke to the coordinators, um, the charity coordinators at the time, and the British group, that, so there's a, there's a Bosnian group, the British group, the British group said to me, well, um, it's your choice, you can do what you like, but you've advertised this as money for these two groups. And I was like, well, and I'm not sure why I did this, right, but I, I, I asked the British group if they did work abroad as well, and they did. So I said, right, I'm going to give all the money for Bosnian children and I'll give half to you and you give it for that. But it's now, now earmarked for that. And for the Bosnian doctors group, they can have their half. Is that agreed? And they said, yes. So I went back to the head and he said, I said, this is what I've done. He goes, why did you do that? And I said, well, it's just, the I thought it was the right thing to do. And it was a counter to this aggression that I was feeling. But I've not misled anybody because I've given the money to the two groups still. Mm. Um, just with this contingency. And he goes, are you going to tell everybody you've done that? I said, yes. And he goes, and then you're going to have to defend it. If you think it's the right thing to do, you're going to have to defend it, right? And, and I did. And I had people arguing with me. I had people upset with me. And I had parents complaining. And, and I weathered that. I weathered that, right? Um, but it made me start to think about the world. And why would people in England, why would people in England be upset about giving money to a child in Bosnia that they know is suffering from war. And it was this like, you know, my own doorstep thing, mm -hmm. right? You know, like, 
we've got people here that are poor, we've got people here, and I get that, right? But I mean, like, question for them is how small is your doorstep? Because <laughs> mine extends to Bosnia, right? Mine just extends to Australia. Because if there's somebody in pain in Australia, that bothers me, right? And um, so I set out to try to understand about why people would have this. And then I started to learn about sort of the far right, which I didn't know about particularly. I was sheltered from this. And I started to learn about um, discrimination and racism in a, in a really in-depth way. How, how did you learn about because the far right I discrimination? Because I spoke, I, well, um, in this conversation, I mean, I was not young, I was 16, 17, yeah. around that age. And one of the people I was arguing with said, I can upset you by just saying two things to you. And I was like, go on then. And he said, NF. And I was like, okay. Well, I was like, no, I'm, I'm not upset, right? But the reason I wasn't upset is I didn't know what it meant. Right, so right, I, right. Went, I went home to my dad and said, Dad, what does NF mean? And he's oh, like, no. he's like, what, why, what, what happened? And I just told him, and he said, it means National Front. It's, it's a far-right racist group that wants to beat people like you up for just existing. I was like, all right, okay, thanks. Thanks for telling me. And so I, I felt I now needed to understand this, right? If you like, that was my radicalization moment, right? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it was, right? And um, do you know what I decided at that point, right? And it's a bit sad that this is what I decided at that point, is that I needed to be involved in affecting that change to that idea and that behavior in people that one minute might be your friend and the next minute might want to do serious harm. I and mean, that was happening in Bosnia, wasn't it, right? There were people that were friends and then suddenly because of this racist and racial disagreement or hatred, they decided to start killing each other. And um, I, I didn't like that. I didn't like that. Like I say to you, in my sort of self-education, Second World War became really important. You know, the Holocaust became really important because that was like the oh my God! This is not just happening in my hometown. Mm. It's happened to like lots of Jews and millions of them died because somebody didn't like where they came from. Wow! Right? Like it's mind blowing. Honestly, it's mind blowing. So, so, so I decided I wanted to be a politician. <laughs> and I thought, Do you know what? I'm going to be a politician. I'm going to, I'm going to one day stand in that House of Commons and I'm going to explain to people. I'm going to really have my hands on, you know, the structures of power. I'm going to change this. And I thought, how do you become a politician? Uh, you become a lawyer, right? Because you learn how to speak, you learn how to make an argument, you become confident as an orator, and yeah, that seems like a good path. So I decided, what kind of lawyer do I want to be? I want to be a criminal lawyer because for me, and I'm not taking anything away from, from um, other lawyers, criminal law kind of seems to be like real. Mm. You know, it's like, okay, when you're comfortable and you're rich and you've got a system, the civilization, you can write a contract and sell a house. Right. Before, you, law, before, before you get there, yeah. people are killing each other, <laughs> stealing from each other, and that kind of has to be regulated. Yeah, a little juicier. So, yeah, well, so I felt, you know, that, that seemed to be a real system where you arbitrate between people. Yeah. And so I decided that that's the kind of lawyer I'd want to be. And I decided that day, and um, I went on this journey. Um, and then I decided to combine um, my sort of legal practice with my understanding of what was wrong with the world, mm -hmm. this inequality, the, the systems of inequality, the positions that the powerful take over the weak. And I decided that I was always gonna work for the weaker person against the stronger person which to this day is what I've done. I, I tend to represent individuals and groups as opposed to states. Um, um, and that's kind of the way I like it. 
Um, I represent pro-democracy -dem movements and individuals that want to push the rule of law and principles of justice. Um, but one really funny thing is that now that I am a lawyer and I am able to take a political position if I want to, um, and I've spoken to people in the Conservative Party, in the Labour Party, and other parties, and I can't do that. And the reason I can't do that is because they're not true to themselves. It's very rare that you meet a politician true to themselves. And what do I mean by that? I mean, part of the reason that we have this inequality and lack of accountability and favouritism over one group or another is because our political system in the UK, as well as in other countries, favours the wealthy, mm -hmm. it favours the powerful, people buy politicians, and I don't mean that improperly, I mean by, um, by persuading them, by having lobby groups, powerful lobby groups. And you have a situation, as we've seen in this recent conflict, where um, a politician will speak to you, know exactly, exactly what's right and wrong, but will not advocate it and we'll speak to something else. And that is something that I cannot be a part of. Well, that, that actually brings me to something I wanted to go over with you, which is, you know, obviously at the, um, the International Center of Justice for Palestinians, you've been very busy the last two months. Yeah. I doubt you've slept, um, and I wondered if we could do kind of a lightning round of everything, kind of the, kind of the top things that you've been doing. Okay. The top one being this, this, this um, issue of UK officials saying things in public yeah. that you've said aid and abet war crimes. Can you run me through that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So I, th I think we need to go back a little bit, mm. because ICJP has been um, submitting legal complaints and advocacy documents for the last couple of years, uh, and quite powerful documents. So what we do is we have been compiling complaints about the last 75 years of issues in Palestine and submitting, to, submitting them to the ICC. Now, the ICC only has a mandate since 2014 to investigate crimes, but the period before 2014 is crucial to put what happened after 2014 into its correct context. You can't just start at 2014 in the same way as you can't start on October the 7th. So we have complaints about um, Shirin Abu Akhla, for example, for, for journalists. We have complaints about destruction of property. We have complaints about um, heritage um, being destroyed. We have uh, land grab issues, settlement issues, um, prisoner issues. Mm. Um, we have the, uh, you know, Israel has this practice of um, holding deceased Palestinians' bodies and not returning to their families. We have a complaint about that. So we have these complaints. And we partner with um, other organisations that already are doing that work. So, for example, we partner um, with Al-Haq sometimes and various other Palestinian organisations, mainly to give them support where they need it or to work on a project jointly. And so we went into um, this situation kind of already at some steam, right? Mm. So we were already litigating and advocating um, for Palestinian rights and, and investigating violations um, by Israel against Palestinians. Um, on October the 7th, on October the 6th, that's what we were doing. October the 7th happened and we took stock. Um, and uh, we're, we're not the best analysts in the world, but we knew what was gonna happen, right? It was clear what was gonna happen. And it didn't take long for Israel to start talking about what it was gonna do anyway. Um, so what happened, we all know, Israel decided to massively bombard Gaza. 
There is no place, you can just turn on a TV set and look at the days following October the 7th and see the massive um, clouds of smoke which are penetrated by the explosives and the fire. And you can sit back and just look at those pictures, you know that innocent civilians are dying en masse. You know it, right? You know it. There's no precision bomb that will um, target a single Hamas operative or even a Hamas building without doing that kind of damage. And what's really interesting, even these precision bombs, I mean, I was watching a graphic about this as part of our investigation. And if, if I, I don't know how to describe it, but if you, I'll describe it like this, the, the area of um, error in these precision guided, so-called precision guided missiles can be the size of like 50 football fields, yeah. right? So unless it's precision guided, it doesn't mean that it's gonna precision hit, right? right. And, and, and so, you know, when you're talking about that two million dense urban area, right, you're talking about mass devastation, and we saw that. And we thought, right, okay, so I remember, um, it was the 9th, was when I did the speech for uh, the Labour Friends of Palestine, by that Friday, and we saw what's happening. But what really worried us was not that um, so much that Israel did what it, we thought it would do, but the fact there was no restraint being um, um, asked of Israel by politicians across the globe, actually. You know, it was like Israel, it's this ridiculous mantra, Israel has the right to self-defense. Yeah, well, great, right? But that self-defense has to be within the law, mm. right? Um, and it became a bit disgusting and disturbing that people would see on the one hand this Israel's right to self-defense and but not call it to do it with restraint or with proportionality or within with reasonable force right so nobody denies that Israel has a right every human being every state has the right to self-defense so given right but there's rules about that and there's proportionality about that and so what happened was um, we saw politicians advocating this. So what we did privately, privately, not many people know this part. Is oh, yeah, that, I was going to say, you yeah, did it privately first? We did this privately okay. first. We wrote okay. to politicians privately. How? Like just emails or WhatsApp? Yeah, well, or? I mean, ICJP has um, been communicating with politicians of all parties in the UK for, for two years now, right? Mm -hmm. So we, yeah, by email, we sent letters, formal letters. I mean, there were formal letters, but we, okay. we communicated. Well, formal letters, telephone calls, text messages, right? Okay. The whole lot, like right? Like this is coming. Yeah. yeah. Well. No, do you realize you're making a mistake? Okay, so not even right? like a pre-action thing. Just, no, just, do hey. you realize you're making okay. a mistake? Interesting. The letter was saying, look, um, what Israel is doing is effectively a war crime. Okay. You, you need to be careful about your public statements because Article 25 of the Rome Statute um, makes it a criminal offense mm. to aid and abet or in any way encourage, right? Um, or sorry, any way assist, including encouragement. My, I think encouragement is my word, but that falls within that bracket. Um, war crimes, and if you're saying to Israel it can do this, yeah. you are encouraging it. What right? reaction did you get back from nothing. these? Nothing. Not from any one of them? Nothing. Across the board? Absolutely nothing. Okay, do you think that's because they didn't want to put anything in print, or? I, th I think because the lobby huh. was so powerful that it was tiring itself out, justifying the attack, and um, but let, let's go on to what happened next, okay. right? Let's go on to what happened next. And what happened next was by Monday, we decided to, we decided, we had a meeting over the weekend. And by the way, my team was working flat out, right? People were on holiday abroad from pre-arranged holidays and you would not know it. You know, they were there present from 
from eight o'clock in the morning till midnight as if they were at work, right? And you know, I did feel sorry for them, but I have a phenomenal team, right? Mm -hmm. I have a phenomenal team. And um, so we decided that we would, we decided that if what we considered a po British politician was doing was being complicit in a war crime, then we could hold them accountable for it, right? And how did you, did you guys get around a table and just sort of hash out how you were gonna go about this or how? Yeah, we got around the table, we thought about it, we, we know the law, the law is like, you know, it's easy, right? Mm -hmm. It's not easy, but you know, we, we, we understand the law. And we thought, well, hang on a minute, this is different to previously, because when it's happened previously, British politicians don't stand up and sort of try to show who's the strongest supporter of Israel. They don't do it in that way, right? right? But this time they were. Now, I can understand it to some degree, because the horrors of October the 7th meant that people were falling over themselves to say solidarity with Israel, right? And we're making them, I mean, the way I put it was that they were either recklessly being complicit in it or worst case scenario, purposefully being complicit in it. So we issued letters, right, public letters, because we decided not that we were going to make the threat, but that we were actually going to prosecute, right? And we issued letters um, to the leadership of the Conservative Party and the opposition, um, mainly because uh, we were surprised that Keir Starmer, an international law expert, human rights law expert, would take the position that he took. So he didn't do it recklessly. He was doing it intentionally. We were really concerned about statements being made by David Lammy, um, Emily Thornberry, uh, James Cleverly, Rishi Sunak, and others, mm -hmm. um, Lisa Nandy included, right? And so we issued a letter putting politicians on notice that um, they were running the risk that they would be prosecuted for being complicit in war crimes if they carried on with that rhetoric. Now, one of the conditions of a politician being complicit is that they have to be put on notice, right? First. So yeah. the letters that we wrote in private put them on notice, but these public letters, which went viral, everybody was talking about it all around the world actually, um, put them on public notice. Within hours, within hours, we saw them move from their position of complete support for Israel to now starting to talk about international humanitarian law being, needs to be respected. So that's the first thing that we did, right? And it was important. Now, they can accept or deny that it was because of our letters, but what they won't deny is that they don't want to be prosecuted in a British court for complicity in war crimes, which is where they were heading, right? And, and I would have been... Uh, I would have, my team would have been um, presenting complaints to Scotland Yard and the ICC about individual politicians who we consider to be complicit. But what's something really interesting happened. Some of them lowered their rhetoric, accepted. Some of them didn't. Some of them didn't. And um, we are preparing case files with regards to those politicians. Ask. Yeah, okay. we are. Do you want to name um, names? No, okay. because we, we are responsible in what we do. Mm -hmm. Um, and remember I said to you that it shouldn't be us doing it, it should be the police and CPS and law enforcement agencies. So we adopt their, methodis, um, their methods. And what we will not do is name individuals who have not been convicted or, pros or are not being prosecuted. So where we, where, we, where we issue complaints, we'll say we have issued a complaint against a person mm -hmm. who is a politician. It's not fair to name them. We're not in this to bring hate on individuals or put individuals in danger. We're not... That's not our business. Mm -hmm. Our business is to hold people accountable for the wrongs they've done through a proper legal process. And so we are preparing those complaints about some individuals. One individual um, which we um, 
which I won't say what, but one of the things that he wrote to his constituents was pretty disgusting um, with regards to civilians in Gaza. And so, so, but there's also another aspect of this, which is you can say, so part of my domestic legal practice is representing people accused of terrorism, okay? And you can fall foul of British counterterrorism laws quite quickly and quite easily. Threshold's quite low. Um, I think that the same threshold is a threshold that should be applied to politicians. So if a politician is saying something along the lines of, um, you, you, Israel has a right to self-defense, I we agree with what Israel is doing, and doesn't condemn those war, um, actions as war crimes, which are clear now, right? There's, I mean, if anybody wants to have that discussion, they can have that discussion, but they're clear now, right? And then says, oh yeah, but just off the wayside, they should respect international law. Well, that's not convincing, right? It's about your actions and your speech to prevent Israel from committing that war crime. Otherwise, you're still encouraging, mm. right? So if one of my, let's look at the other way around. If, if um, I'm supplying Hamas with weaponry, right, or support or encouragement, mm. and then I say, Oh yeah, Hamas, can you like when you kill all those innocent people, can you just do it according to the international law? I would be prosecuted, right, and spend the rest of my life probably in prison for that. Okay? Well, why doesn't the same standard apply to our politicians, right? And and what 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 I think a mistake that international human rights organizations, lawyers like me, have made over the last 75 years is to ignore Western political complicity in Israel's crimes. And that's going to stop now, right? I hold no quarter for any politician anywhere in the world that wants to support a war crime, be it Israel or anywhere else. It's time to hold the political class responsible for what they're encouraging, aiding and abetting and doing. Because you know what? When you kill, right, because of your political decision, the son or the daughter of somebody in Palestine, when you do that, they have to live with that for the rest of their lives. And, and I'll add this to this as well, right, Daniel? Um, that same responsibility applies to this political failure, applies to the son of a daughter of a Jewish person in Israel, right? That parent has to live with that. Not because that Jewish person or that Palestinian person have done anything wrong themselves, but because of the failure of these politicians. But you know what? They end their political careers or their term in government and think, oh, that's it, I'll go off and get a really good job in some investment bank. We're not going to allow that this time. So tell me, you know, um, with these letters that are going to, the action that's going to move forward, where would you file these complaints and, and how would it proceed? So, so let's just, just before I say how we're going to proceed, what, that's one aspect. What we're now doing is we've launched the Justice for Gaza campaign where we are the primary actors in collecting actual evidence from the ground in Gaza and Israel um, about war crimes. We're doing that and our body of evidence is growing and you may have seen that we presented some evidence to Scotland Yard recently in the form of eyewitness testimony from inside the hospitals. Um, so what we are shortly going to do is we're going to launch, not launch, submit complaints about um, crimes against humanity, genocide, important important talk about that as well, um, and um, collective punishment. We're going to lodge these complaints with Scotland Yard and the ICC, um, and we'll provide in our complaints the complaint, so the law will be written out. Um, it'll be like a prosecution file that you get from the prosecution service, as good if not better, right? And it will have the evidence to support the complaint, 
and we will provide Scotland Yard with the details of the perpetrators along with the complaint, along with the evidence. And the, 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 what we're going to do with that, and so our first, first complaint will be on collective punishment, which I'm just going to, because people are watching this and say, ha-ha, he doesn't know collective punishment isn't the Rome Statute crime. Yes, I know that, right? So collective punishment is not in the Rome Statute, so the ICC doesn't have jurisdiction over the concept of collective punishment, but it's a Geneva Convention crime. So the Fourth Protocol makes that a crime, and the UK has jurisdiction over that. So we can still bring these complaints, and this gives an idea of what we're going to do. And my decision in, um, if you like, being the prosecutor, the chief prosecutor in, in, in the team, is that we are going to um, prosecute by supplying Scotland Yard in the UK this evidence. Um, we're going to supply it to the Karim Khan at the ICC, because he's got a very important job at this moment in time, crucial. If the ICC is going to endure this crisis, then he has an enormous responsibility on his shoulders. But that's not where we're going to stop. Right, um, we are going to, if we can, apply for private arrest warrants. Now, of course, the British government, through the Attorney General, is sort of a fix that they've put in place after the um, uh, Zippy Livni arrest warrant that we applied for successfully and got, um, might intervene and stop that. That might happen. But you know what? It's not just the West anymore, right? You know, the world's changing. Geopolitics of the world is changing. Now we've got the global south. We've got India, we've got China, we've got countries across the globe that don't, that have been criticised for decades for not applying international humanitarian law in their own way. And now they're seeing that the West is actually only paying lip service to it. Well, I'm going to encourage them to apply international humanitarian law to, to their judicial systems. And so we're engaging in conversations with them. And um, when this politician that I talked about from the UK who thinks, oh, I've done my five years, I've now got this fantastic job in uh, some investment back, has to travel to Malaysia or Singapore or Colombia, Venezuela, or watch out. Yeah, because they might. And they're likely to. And one of the reasons they might do is because they might say, these are your laws. These are laws you've been hitting us over the head with for ages. It's not going to be safe for any political actor, military actor, that has engaged in war crimes, and as far as, it doesn't matter, if, I was going to say, as long as I live, it's probably a bad thing to say, as long as ICJP and lawyers like me exist, and there's plenty of us, and organisations like ICJP exist, and once we've set that track off, it works by itself. And that's really important, because if we believe in a system of international humanitarian law, it's not Western humanitarian law, international humanitarian law, can be applied by anybody anywhere in the world. Has that been tried before, where, where countries in the global south are arresting Western politicians? I think what I'll say to you about this is that I've had positive responses, number one. Um, number two, the world's changed in the last two years. It's changed. It's not like it was before. Uh, Russia has become arch enemy, hasn't it, you know, of, of the West, and the Ukraine conflict saw that. You've got the rise of the BRIC states. Um, you've even got Hollywood movies making Russians the baddie and not Muslims anymore, just for this period, giving Muslims a bit of a break. And then James on film, it's going to be probably a Russian next, and maybe, a, you know, somebody, I don't know. But anyway, um, so, so you've, got, you've got this shift in geopolitics at the moment. And so, um, like you said, you know, it might be seen as obscure or maverick or different, but it works. Why cannot a Colombian or a Venezuelan or a Singaporean or a Chinese law enforcement agency invest investigate and prosecute war crimes? Why not? Why not? That's the simple question, isn't it? And this politician that we're kind of dancing around, would they know 
that when they go to one of these countries, they, they're going to be arrested, they, or it would be a surprise? So, so we will put them on notice that uh -huh. we've submitted a complaint, uh -huh. because part of what I want to do for the, to the politician is ask them to explain themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit, if you imagine when you get arrested, not when you go, when a person is arrested. Last time I was arrested. Yeah, yeah. When a person <laughs> gets arrested, they get taken to a police station, they're interviewed. So we will offer an opportunity to politicians to be interviewed on record to give an explanation, to explain what they were saying, what they meant by it, mm. or to put their defense forward if they want to. I suspect not very many of them will take that opportunity on board. That's fine, that's up to them. But we'd be responsible in our work if we have reasonable explanations then we wouldn't want to impact that person with that but this doesn't just apply to british politicians by the way right where this is this is global this is israeli politicians american politicians okay. politicians across the world and we're building case files on these individuals and i think it's really important because this is the political leaders that are causing the problem why do they always get scot-free and actually it's really interesting one of my clients a long time ago was tortured um, I don't want to say what country and what, but he was tortured. And we found the torturer in legal proceedings. We found the torturer. And when, we, when I said to him, I said, look, you know, we found your torturer, right? What action, what are my instructions? What do we do with this guy, right? Do you want to complain about him? Do you want to prosecute him? And he said, I don't, I don't want anything to happen to him. Nothing. He goes, I have no issue with the person in that military unit that tortured me. He goes, I want the guy that gave him the order, hmm. right? And I think, you know, we've forgotten that a little bit, that our military actors are doing their job, right? Sometimes they agree with it, sometimes they don't, sometimes they relish it, I accept that. And they should be held responsible for what they do, of course they should be. But let's not forget the political class behind them, right? If it, they're making the actual decisions that put that soldier in, in a war zone, that's Zippy Libney was that political actor, and we did that. We didn't go after a military person firing a bomb, we went after the group of people that gave the order to attack civilians in Gaza in Operation Castellade, successfully, by the way. And would you call that what happened with Zippy Livni successful, even though she wasn't arrested? Totally, 100% successful. If, if part, it, was, it was part of a movement, right? And we, we broke relations between the United Kingdom and Israel. We made politicians hear and there think about what happened. But look at what's really important. When I'm asked questions by journalists now about, do you really think Israel is committing a war crime? I said, well, a British court did in 2009 because they issued an arrest warrant for Zippy Livni. That was not some judge standing up and saying, oh, yeah, here, have a sweet. It was us presenting a legal argument with evidence about an Israeli, senior Israeli politician, former politician, allegedly committing war crimes in Operation Castellade. And that judge looked at the evidence, senior judge, senior chief magistrate, looked at the evidence, assessed the evidence, said, actually, yeah, this is a big deal. I'm going to give you an arrest warrant for this individual. And what's really important about that, it's not like an arrest by a police officer. When you apply for an arrest warrant at a court, it's given on a prima facie basis. What that means is only if there's a realistic um, prospect of a prosecution. So you've gone past the police investigation stage, as far as the court's concerned. There is a case against that individual to prosecute them. And then what happens is that they can defend the case by saying, Zippy Livni could have said, for example, um, these are the reasons why this happened and it's not a war crime. Mm -hmm. And just think about that, right? And you, you, you asked me if it was successful. Um, I'll, uh, in terms of its success, um, it made a mark. It's, that mark is still there today. Um, the British government had to change the law, so we've got this now, right? We changed the law, meaning they, they did change the law. There's, it's harder to do what you did now, isn't it? It's, it they made it easier, but they don't realise it, right? But that's fine, right? Okay. And, and what I, when I say that is that now I work with the police instead of doing it on my own. I don't have to find half a million quid to go to a court and 
apply for a private pro prosecution arrest warrant, I go to Scotland Yard and say, do your job. That's what you. That's the new law. You've got to do it. Tell, tell me more about that. I don't know how this law works. So, so let, let, what, what happens now is that if I go to apply for a private arrest warrant, I have to get permission from the DPP and Attorney General before the court will give me my arrest warrant. So I'm standing there in court and the judge will say to me, have you got permission? And I'll say, no. And so what the new system is, it goes back into the system, back to Scotland Yard, and Scotland Yard carry out a scoping exercise and then refer that back to the attorney. It's not a really long-winded process. So I've stopped applying for a private arrest warrant for war crimes. Well, all I do now is I say to Scotland Yard, it's your job, you do it. So you hand them the case file and you I say... Give them the case, I, I prepare the case, I prepare the evidence, and say, here you go, you do your job. The police are good. The police are good. The, what the police do in this situation is if they've got evidence, they act on it. So now it's their job. When I did this for another state... Um, not Israel, not so long ago. What we did, the police were moving forward step by step in the way that they should. And every time they came to a political block, I judicially reviewed it, right? So I was like, okay, let's remove that. And we went to the next stage. And we went to the next stage. And, and so, so when I say easier, I mean, yeah, well, okay, fine. If the, if the British government want the police to do it, let's let the police do it. And also sounds cheaper. It's a lot cheaper. Right. And, and, and also, um, it's, it also... Fortunately for me, and unfortunately for the government, shows their duality. Because if they, and I'll come back to this, if, imagine what the situation would have been today, right, with regards to Gaza in 2023, if in 2009 the British government had not improperly blocked Zippy Livni's prosecution. What would have happened? Zippy Livni would have been prosecuted, her evidence would have been presented about whether she'd committed a war crime or not. Her and the Israeli government would have been able to respond to that. There would have been a determination in a British court about whether or not this Israeli politician had committed war crimes or not. That's called accountability. That's called rule of law. I would have been fine with her being acquitted. I would have been fine with her being convicted. But if she'd have been convicted, which is what I think probably would have happened, right? Do you think the Israelis would be so ready to do what they're doing now? killing 17,000 plus people, 7,000 plus children. Just think about that difference. So when we say whose hand, who's, who's, on whose hand is this blood, well, I can point to a group of people in the British government that protected and gave Israeli politicians this impunity. And I, I don't call it, I, I would describe this impunity as a curse, okay? It's a curse for the Israeli government and the Israeli people because what do they want? What do Israelis want? They want protection for the Jewish people. They want security. They want what the Palestinians want. They want their children to grow up safely. They want to go to school. They want them to have health. They want them to have food. They want them to have meds. Straightforward, right? This impunity that politicians have placed in, in between um, accountability and, um, and, and, and these politicians is a curse because it's preventing that mm. security. Mm. It's preventing it. You can say, oh, great, I got away with it, but then you know there's going to be another um, attack at some point, there's going to be another war at some point, and it's not me looking forward to say this. I'm just looking back at the last 75 years, a cycle of violence, Palestinian and Israeli, Israeli and Palestinian, Palestinian, round and round we go. The impunity is a curse. Well, and, and you bring me to kind of a really important question that we need to discuss is genocide. Um, my understanding is that there's a really high legal threshold to yeah. argue that. Um, and it could take years, and it could happen, you know, long, way, way into the distance. You know, is, is justice deferred, justice denied in this case? I mean, 
You, you say there's a really high threshold. You tell me. No, no, no. You say there's a really high threshold. And the reason people say there's a really high threshold is what you first of all have to show is that a population or part of a population is being targeted for a particular reason to do with their identity, ethnicity, religion, or uh, origin. And that's the easy bit, right? Because you've got Israel attacking Palestinians. So you've got attacks on civilian infrastructure. You've got the blockade for a start. You've got a situation that Israel is trying to create where they shut down the hospital infrastructure. And that creates uh, a position where disease, cholera, moves rife through the population. And it, you, you have to leave the uh, state or, or, the, or the area of the land. The, the, what, what Israel is doing is clearly a collective punishment situation. The bit where it's hard to prove is the intention. So there's just two parts, right? And so normally, let's say, for example, if Britain was being accused of genocide in Iraq, Right, where hundreds of thousands of people died. I'm not saying it is, I'm saying if it were. Well, you'd have to show its intent to do that, and you wouldn't be able to, right? You just wouldn't be able to, because what Britain did with its allies in Iraq and in, in the Iraq war wasn't genocide. It was, whatever it was, it was, but it wasn't genocide. And you certainly couldn't prove or make a case out for it to be genocide. But if you gift a state with impunity, to do whatever it wants, it becomes really bold, not only in its actions, but also in its statements. And how do you show intention? You show intentions by what somebody says, okay. right? And we have Benjamin Netanyahu. We have other senior, really senior. So first of all, you've got, you've got um, politicians announcing that there's a siege on Gaza, full stop. You've got politicians saying that, um, referring to uh, Palestinians as human animals. You've got politicians and military personnel, senior military personnel, referring to the situation um, with regards to uh, civilians as there, isn't, there are no civilians, right? They're all the same, okay? But then the most important one, commander-in-chief, if you like, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, he referred to Amalek and a religious scripture. Right. Now, when, when, when you have um, terrorism prosecutions, right, often when you're talking about Islamists in the UK being prosecuted, you look at what they intended by their action, by what they said, the kind of material they had, and their course of conduct leading up to that point, okay? So if you have loads of religious scripture, so what makes me blowing up a building, not me being upset about that building ruining my view, and being a criminal action because I want a better view, and being a terrorist attack from an Islamist basis, if you like, or a far-right basis, wherever it might be. You look at what I say, you look at what things I read, you look at what I have in my computer, and you have that mindset material which gives the intention to what's happening. And so you say, well, it wasn't like he was looking for a better view. He was some Islamist and he was like supporting some terrorist organization or he was some far-right, supporting some far-right terrorist organization. That's what gives rise to that. So Amalek is exactly that for Benjamin Netanyahu. What, what, if you look at the scripture, you see what the directive is in the scripture to um, what he refers to, which is to destroy your enemy in every way, man, woman, children, infant, ox and calf. I mean, that's a pretty clear reference to give me an indication 
that that is a genocidal statement, yeah. right? And I don't, I, I'm not using genocidal in this. This is, this is some, somewhat of a problem because what people think when you say genocidal, they think you're talking about as a descriptor. I'm not talking about as a descriptor. I'm talking about as a legal definition of a criminal act in the Rome Statute, right? I mean, that's what I'm talking about, and in British law too, because it's a crime in British law too. So I think when you've given gift, and like I said to you, impunity is a curse because it gives the Israeli authorities the bravado to tell people what their crime they're about to commit. And there's the evidence. Well, it seemed to be, in, in this case, impunity is a blessing for a lawyer like you because then it gives you evidence that you can present to... Impunity is never a blessing. <laughs> Sorry. It's never a blessing. Because <laughs> we'll if you're no, no, no. If, no, 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 you can keep... A, yeah. Impunity is... Um, removing impunity is accountability. Right. right. So we'd already be there, right? We'd already be there. We'd, there is sufficient evidence. I, I always say this about Israel. I mean, I, when people discuss with me the evidential basis in the work that we do, I say, you know, it's just such an unusual situation, right? Because we've got what we have is an abundance of evidence, right? Right. right. It's just right there it's on Twitter, right or there. X, or whatever you we want to call it. It's right yeah. there, right? Evidence is never the problem here. The problem is that same reason why I can't currently think about even sitting as a member of parliament. Not that I'd necessarily win, but I couldn't sit because it's the political will that's missing. And in my discussions on this issue, there are so few MPs that are. There's a lot of MPs that know the truth. There's only a very, very few that are prepared to say the truth. And we saw that in the ceasefire vote. We saw that in the ceasefire vote, where very few people were prepared to say, actually, let's vote for a ceasefire. And the ridiculousness of this is that the Labour Party, for example, were saying, along the let's go for this amendment of some nonsense humanitarian puzzle. We've seen the use of that in the last few days, right? Let's make people a little bit better so when we bomb them, they die healthy. It's ridiculous, right? It's a ridiculous situation to take. And you've got, you've got a situation where the argument for not voting for ceasefire was that we want to talk about something realistic, right? So we could probably get to a humanitarian pause. But then at the same time saying, well, what we say doesn't matter because Israel is not going to do what we say. So then why not make the noise as loud as possible and say ceasefire? Mm. Why not say that? What, 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 isn't that, for me, that's evidence of complicity. That's evidence of going along specifically with Israel's strategy of wanting to cause maximum damage to Palestinians on the ground, using the maximum level of violence and force possible, and British politicians still giving consent to that and are complicit in that. Because the only way to stop that is to say to Israel, if you carry on like this, you're going to lose our support. You've killed 17,000 people. You've killed 7,000 children. You've shut down the entire hospital infrastructure. You need to stop or you're going to lose our support entirely. Entirely. And I want to say this other thing about Hamas as well. This another fiction about Hamas, which is the British government saying that you can't talk to Hamas. We can't talk to them. Well, first of all, the Israelis are talking to Hamas, right, in Qatar. They are talking to them. And who are you going to talk to? If you're not talking to your enemy, who are you going to make peace with? Who, who is that? The idea that you can eradicate a Palestinian resistance movement, and I'm not talking about Hamas as a Palestinian resistance movement, I'm talking about the Palestinians that resist occupation, right? If you're talking about not, if, you're, if, you're, if we're, our understanding is the way to come to peace is to ignore them, marginalize them, well, that's no way to talk about peace. I mean, Armistice Day, right? 
was not, was not an agreement of peace that led to a ceasefire. Armistice Day, which we know was controversial in terms of this protest, which was massively peaceful by the protesters, as we know. But Armistice Day was a ceasefire to allow an agreement. The agreement in Armistice Day came after the ceasefire, not before it, mm. right? And if you're telling me that our politicians don't know this, it's a lie, they do. But 100% guarantee you they know this. And so when they're saying this on TV, that you know this is a betrayal of Armistice Day to call for a ceasefire, to have a ceasefire vote, it's the most appropriate day to have a ceasefire protest. It, what, what those pro-Palestinian ceasefire protesters were doing was having an armistice parade. That's what they were doing, right? That's what they were doing. It was in. It was completely in the spirit of Armistice Day. Completely. What wasn't in the spirit of Armistice Day was the far right that went and caused actual violence. Were you out on the street? No, I wasn't. I wasn't in the street. Lawyers from my firm um, represent people in that situation, but I. I mean, to be honest with you, we've been working flat out on the legal work and, and supporting the legal work. But ICGP's objective here is about um, holding accountable on a rule of law level. Um, there are lots of people out on the street, but I was one of them. Well, I want to I go back to this, the sense that there is so much evidence that you can pass along to the ICC or to Scotland Yard. I want to talk about the ICC. Yeah. Seems to me the ICC is the best, uh, the most likely place for Palestinian justice. But this investigation has kind of dragged on and on, the investigation into Israel-Palestine. And now we know from Karim Khan that Gaza and what's happening there now, that he has jurisdiction or the ICC has jurisdiction there. But do you think anything will come of this? Do you think the ICC is going to, to bring justice for Palestinians? Yeah, I think rather than saying whether I think anything could come of it, what I would say is it should come of it. And the... International Criminal Court as an institution since its creation. Um, it's a phenomenal creation, right? It's a phenomenal institution. Um, it's, it's effectively, for me, from being 16 to that, seeing that, it's like a dream come true that this body existed that wanted to actually hold people accountable for the things that I, as a, as a teenager, saw was wrong. And then you create this institution, I just think, wow, right? And then, and then it starts off in its sort of first chapter in attacking African leaders only. And you just think, well, hang on a minute. What, what, what is this? And then you kind of think, well, okay, maybe it'll develop into a more fair institution. And you have African states sort of disengaging from it or criticising it because they feel victimised from it. And then you, you have its development. And now we're in this really important phase for it right now. You had Fatou Ben Soda, the former uh, ICC prosecutor, who was lobbied and uh, complaints were sent about Palestine. It took her a long time, unfortunately, just as she was leaving office to open uh, the Palestine-Israel investigation. And I get that. And that happened. But I think this is existential for um, the ICC. Um, I still cling to it as an institution, but I'm very close to giving up. And um, I think that's the way that many people in the world are looking at the ICC. Um, Karim Khan has a really difficult job. And, you know, I sympathise with the role that he's got. On the one hand, he has to keep the uh, states that are party to the ICC on board. He has to keep the funding flowing for the ICC. He has to 
position himself as an independent prosecutor, a really difficult thing to do in this context. Um, and he has to, you know, the world is looking at him to see whether or not the ICC prosecutor will fulfill its obligation as, um, will fulfill its mandate. And um, what he's done so far is he's visited Rafa, he's visited Israel, he's visited the October 7th families, which is good and that he should have done that. But he could have gone to Gaza. He could have gone to Gaza, the Red Cross are in Gaza. He could have visited Palestinian families that are suffering right now. But what he should have done, which he didn't do, is call out Israel for what appear to be prima facie cases of war crimes and make it clear that there is no safety and no impunity for Israeli war crimes. What he said was quite worrying, which is what he said was that um, uh, Israel has uh, lawyers advising its military officers um, about the targeting of targets in Gaza and has a robust, robust system to apply international humanitarian law. And that's not right to say that. As a prosecutor, you should not be giving your uh, potential suspect the defence case. Being a defence lawyer, if a prosecutor ever said that to me about my clients, I'd be like, I'm home free, thank you very much. I'll put that in the defence statement, right? As a prosecutor, he should stay acutely uh, independent. He should make statements about what Hamas has done in Israel without a doubt. There's no, I have no issue with that. But he should also make statements preventative statements about what Israel is doing. He should be able to make clear statements about blockade. He could, should be able to make clear statements about siege. He should be able to make clear block, um, statements about the hospital infrastructure being deconstructed purposely by Israel. He should be able to make um, clear statements about the massive, massive civilian loss. Forget the 17,000 if you want, for argument's sake, 7,000 children alone. Right? Just let's just talk about that. Let's 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 evaporate ten thousand deaths. So let's pretend they don't happen. Let's just talk about the seven thousand. On what place in our humanity do we have that we can kill seven thousand children? We global responsibility, right? Because we're allowing Israel to do it. And that's all right. And that could be part of a targeted military exercise. And that unacceptable. And, and it takes me back to this point that um, I'm desperate for the ICC not to fail. I'm desperate for the ICC not to fail because what is happening in Gaza is going to resonate in the international community for decades, decades, right? We're not in 1948 where Jewish people went into Israel and took land from Palestinians, and people didn't really know about it, right? People, first of all, didn't really care about it, didn't really know about it. You know, on the back of what happened in the Holocaust, people were like, well, something's got to be done, right? We're in an age where an atrocity in Gaza is live streamed to my phone in London, right? I'm recording this for evidential purposes. People are vid giving me statements by video link. People are sending me recorded footage of deaths of children, hospitals being attacked, um, civilian infrastructure being bombed. I'm, I'm, you're getting this in real time. This is going to be recorded forever. Right. You're not going to be able to give Israel impunity in 
contrast to that evidence that the world is seeing, and just I think that the ICC is going to exist afterwards. And when the ICC works properly, it's phenomenal, right? Look at what it did in Ukraine. It went into a war zone and it supported Ukrainian prosecutors prosecuting Russian alleged war criminals and convicting them in a war zone during a war. It can do it if it wants to, right? It can do it if it wants to. So what's the difference in Palestine? What's the difference? And this is the, this is the most difficult question Karim has to answer because, do you know, for Karim, for Karim, who's a British barrister, a senior respected British barrister, this will be the legacy he carries with him for the rest of his career. If he fails the Palestinian people in holding Israeli military and political personnel accountable for war crimes in Gaza, that will be his legacy and he will not be allowed to forget it. And if the ICC does not provide justice for Palestinians, who's going to? Is there any other institution that they can turn to? What's, what's plan B? Well, I mean, and for, I mean, so so of course we're trying to do what we can, and we're not a state, you know, we're not funded in the way that the ICC is, right, um, or even a state-led led government. We're not funded in that way. We should be probably by now, but we're not. <laughs> um, but um, I so think, your plan B. Yeah. Well. Okay. The, well. Your work is plan B. Well, unfortunately, my work is plan B, but there is a unfortunate plan C, which is a perpetuation of violence. That's where you end up, isn't it? If you take away accountability, you take away the rule of law, you, you forget why we made these rules in the first place, well, it's violence, isn't it? That's where you end up. Now, I don't want to see that happen. Our politicians don't want to see that happen. So you ask the question, why are they facilitating that to happen? And, and you know, you go, to, um, uh, you go to some of our political statements where they talk about what we had to do as Britain in World War II to defeat the Nazis. We had to kill in Dresden, you know, the um, Minister of Defence made this remark in a TV interview, 23,000 people, civilians killed in, um, by British soldiers, Air Force, in the Battle of Dresden. We had to do it to defeat the Germans, okay? Right? In, a, in, a, in a panel event, I was asked recently whether we would have beaten the Nazis had we not done that and not done Hiroshima. That's what I was asked. And it's a good question, isn't it? Like, you know, it's the argument that Israel has to kill 17,000 civilians and 7,000 children in order to defeat Hamas. Okay? And my answer to that question was this. Because we had to kill 23,000 people in Dresden, because 6 million Jews died in World War II, we developed a system of law and institutions to make sure that we would never, ever have to let that happen again. So it's because of those deaths, and it may well have been seen as necessary at the time, but the rule of law was created after that to stop that from happening again. And what, what's happening in Israel is not the fault of Palestinians in Gaza. What's happening is Israel, and, and what's happening in Gaza is not necessarily in that way the fault of the Israelis. It's the fault of the international community's political failure to create and enforce a solution between those two states and continually and perpetually 
marginalizing the Palestinian voice there, which is doing right now as well. There is no, where have you heard the Palestinian voice in this debate talking about what they want, what they need, the security they need? I'm not Palestinian. I'm advocating for Palestinians. Where, where is the negotiation with the Palestinian voice? You get Hussam Zamlot, the um, mission ambassador, coming on TV here, and he's being asked to condemn Hamas. And he's being asked to... He, he goes on TV and tells the interviewer that his family members have been killed, and he's asked to condemn Hamas, right? Where's the, Palestinian, where's the respect to the Palestinian voice, the civilian Palestinian voice? Where is that? Where, is, where are they at the table? Where is the, where is the part where you say to a Palestinian group, come to the table, let's have a discussion about what Palestine needs, what Palestinians need for security and stability. Where's that voice? It's absolutely missing. It's an absolute betrayal. It's an absolute indictment on the West. It's, it, it shows anti-Palestinian racism and it, it shows racism and uh, an imperialistic mindset from Western states that think they can impose this peace on a body of people. Why, why aren't we talking to them? What do they need? I'll tell you what they need and why they're not talking to them. They need peace, security, houses. They need schools. They need hospitals. They need food, water. They need to be able to laugh and play in the playground. They need to be able to travel freely. They need to be able to visit another country. They need to be able to go on holiday, just like you and me and everybody else. They want iPhones, they want designer gear, they want footballs, they do, this is all they want. The, the dehumanization of Palestinians is part of this problem. I mean, can you really look at Palestinian dead bodies and think that is different to an Israeli dead body? Is it, is it an acceptable thing for the IDF to show video footage of what Hamas did to um, Israelis on October the 7th? But it's unacceptable for Palestinians to show the same kind of videos about what's going on right now, including with children. I'm glad you bring up sort of questions of why this and not that. I, I want to talk to you about British nationals fighting in Israel and Palestine. Um, there's been some comparisons made with, with British nationals that went to Ukraine or were thinking about it. Uh, ICJP's kind of been looking at this issue, been pressing the FCDO for yeah. some guidance. Can you walk us through what you've done and what the issues are? Yeah, so, so what we've got is a very dangerous situation, actually. We have British citizens, I mean, dangerous for two reasons. We've got well, multiple reasons, actually. We've got British citizens in the UK that have uh, answered the call by the IDF to go to Israel and participate in hostilities against Palestinians. And that's a really interesting question um, as to whether they're allowed to do that or whether we want as Britain as in terms of our own national security British citizens to go there and do that and so one of the things that we noted was that the FCDO the Foreign Office had not issued guidance to British citizens as to whether or not they were allowed to go and join um, the IDF or Palestinian groups or anybody else for that matter right so regional uh, state armies Lebanon um, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Emirates, you know, there's a number of armies in that region, Iran, for example, Turkey. Um, and the foreign officers have, have ignored us. Um, we've now written to them for the third time. We wrote to them, we wrote to the previous foreign secretary first, then we wrote to this last foreign secretary um, because 
and we thought we'd remind them that we had this question. We also brought to their attention the risk of genocide. The risk of genocide is very specific because under the Genocide Convention, if there's a risk of genocide, a state party to the Genocide Convention has to act to prevent it. So that's why we did that. Uh, but now we've written again um, because there's now there was a reported death of a, a British citizen um, as part of the IDF. And that's a concern because we don't want British citizens to die as part of the IDF or as part of Palestinian forces. We don't want that to happen. Mm. Um, we also don't want British citizens to go out into what is effectively somebody else's war and then return to this country as veterans of that war, whether they're Palestinian or Jewish, because that has community cohesion issues here. Better that our citizens stay out of it. So one is their own safety. Um, secondly is community cohesion issues. And thirdly, what guidance is the British government giving to British citizens who are flying out there and fighting in an army which is accused of very serious war crimes. And so you've, you've asked the Foreign Office to provide guidance. and So we, we've asked the Foreign Office to provide guidance in the same way as it has done with Syria, mm -hmm. with people going out there to join either the YPG or ISIS, mm -hmm. for example. And what was the guidance in that case? Well, you, you clearly can't go and fight in... Uh, you get prosecuted if you go and fight with ISIS. It's really bog-standard, straightforward. <laughs> yep. uh, guidance not needed, prosecutions are plenty, right? Um, with, with the Ukraine, the guidance is very specific. Um, the guidance was um, if you go to Ukraine and you fight and you return to the UK, you could be prosecuted under British law. Could be prosecuted? Could be. Has anyone been prosecuted? Not that I'm aware of yet. Okay. Yet. Early, it's, it's still early days, mm -hmm. okay, in, in respect of that prosecution. But people have been prosecuted for going out and fighting, um, we know, with ISIS, but we also know with the YPG, with the, other, with the Kurdish side, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we know that that's happened, okay? Um, so what's really interesting is why the Foreign Office is failing to provide similar guidance. Guidance to say, yes, you can go, or guidance to say, no, you shouldn't go, or guidance to say, if you go and you commit a war crime, or you might, there's a risk of you committing a war crime, you come out, you may be prosecuted. And I'm curious as to why they're not providing that guidance. What about dual nationals? What if, what if I'm British and Israeli? I mean, does that change, is that a little bit different than just a Brit going to fight for Ukraine, who's, who's not Ukrainian, or? Well, we have the Foreign Enlistment Act, mm -hmm. um, which is, uh, I accept an old act, and that does prevent a person going to fight in a foreign state um, with, against another state, another foreign state, which is at peace with the United Kingdom. So the Ministry of Defense in a few, a few years ago, I think 2014, I think 2014, issued some guidance about that and said they didn't consider the Palestinian, um, the Palestinians to be a state. Mm. And it didn't consider that because it was a civil war situation, this situation didn't apply, okay? Mm. I don't agree with that analysis. I think that analysis is wrong. Um, and we're taking steps to correct that which I don't really want to go into in this interview. I wanted to read you something that you said recently uh, in a talk you gave. This was about a month ago. Um, and this was, a, this was a talk you gave to the um, MCB, the Muslim Council of Britain. Mm -hmm. You said, it's time to own this issue. We don't have to be apologists for being here. We don't have to apologize for having a view. We don't have to apologize for making the British values dear to us as Muslims in this community and thinking that actually they matter matter to us potentially more than our politicians. If we as the Muslim community cannot get this issue right for Palestinians, then we will lose our rights and the ability to speak for our rights for generations to come. Yeah. That seemed like kind of a, a deep statement and I wondered if you could unpack a little bit. 
Well, I mean, I think a lot of it is covered in sort of my journey to getting to where I am now. And what I mean by this is that um, as a heritage Pakistani British Muslim um, who sees Britain as his country, right, and finds British values important, ones that should be protected, um, I find that just because I happen to have complexion, brown complexion to my skin, often I'm pointed out as being the other, right? And so, for example, if you have European people coming to the UK who have become British but not born here um, because of the colour of their skin, they're accepted sometimes as being British much quicker than I am. And, and that's simply because they uh, are white, right? Simple reason. And sometimes that's because there is an inherent racism in the person that's objectively looking at that individual, but sometimes because they can hide, mm. because they don't have to talk about where they came from. You can lose your accent quite quickly. I mean, I don't know if I sound like a Yorkshireman anymore, but, you know, even I've lost some of my... When I'm in Yorkshire, they don't think I'm from Yorkshire. You know, they think I'm from a Southern Softy or whatever, right? <laughs> so, um, but, but what I find is that that, that treatment of... Um, people who are not white and come from whose, whose parents or grandparents or great-grandparents come from abroad creates a complex sometimes in that community, in my community, in the Muslim community, British Muslim Pakistani, British Indian, um, the British black community, in that you sometimes forget or you're made to forget that you actually are British. And that means you have a right to stand up for what you think Britain should stand for. And you have a right to participate. And you have a right to advocate. And you have a right to insist as an equal that our politicians also adhere to and understand what are British values. And so what I was saying when I said that is that don't be fearful of demanding what's right. Don't worry about how you do that. And, and it's, it's difficult because in, in the current context, the Muslim lobby, the Palestinian lobby, is not as powerful as the Israeli lobby, which is sometimes funded by Israel, a state. You know, it's got a massive state behind it. Israel's massively funded by America, which is the tune of billions. That same sort of process doesn't exist on the Muslim-Palestinian side. But, but what's important there is that that doesn't make our voice any less important. It doesn't make our standing up for our rights any less important. And what's sometimes done is this um, attempt to dislocate what is uh, a, a, what a Muslim person or a, let's just use crude terms, brown person wants in this country to be something different to what a white English person wants in this country. And it's not really. We all want the same thing. As I've said, same things Palestinians and Israelis want. We want peace, we want security, we want a safe place for our children to go to school. We want to play in the park. You know, we want to have birthday parties. We want to celebrate Christmas just like everyone have a holiday on Christmas Day. We want that stuff, right? We want that stuff. But we also recognise the things that are important to us, but also important to non-ethnic English people, British values. And this is being stolen from us, right? It's being stolen from... The Muslim community has been stolen from the Indian community, the Christian community, the white community. We're all being pitted against each other mm -hmm. in some ridiculous culture war about our differences. Whilst people at the top are 
politicians and the wealthy are creaming it and telling us that we all should be fighting each other when actually we all should be looking in the same direction at them and saying not anymore. And, and when we say the Palestinian fight, the legal fight and the accountability fight is rooted deeply in British culture, it's rooted deeply in British values, it's rooted deeply in what we say British values are. British, what are democratic values? It's international humanitarian laws, international human rights law. That's what epitomizes British democratic values, right? So when a, when a Muslim is standing up and saying, this is what I demand, they're not demanding Muslim rights. They're not demanding Palestinian rights. They're demanding British rights and British values. And when they're being marginalized by people saying, well, actually, you're just a Muslim person, you're just a brown person, you can't allow that to happen. And you've got to fight back against that. And you've got to demand that equality. And you can't be intimidated by it. This, this is what I'm saying yeah. in this situation. When I wonder, you said a journey. I wonder if you, you had to go through a journey to yourself stop feeling intimidated, whether, whether this is a, an evolution that you've gone through or if you always came out fighting as, as you are now. Well, I mean, my um, parents instilled in me a real sense of what was right and wrong. They instilled in me the idea of community. They instilled in me the idea of unity. And what I mean by that is that um, my dad worked with different Muslim communities that didn't necessarily agree with each other to try to bring them together. Oh, was he a mediator? He just did it in his own time. My dad was okay. a bus driver, <laughs> right? Okay. And, he, and he thought that it was really important. My dad's a great guy. He, he did it because he thought it was really important to bring people that didn't work together together just because it would be a mechanism for peaceful um, for peace and that's what he did so he did that he did that in our local community in our hometown um, he taught me to stand up for the little guy so where people were uh, say attacking us in as, as being Asian in a largely white neighborhood he taught me that we should stand up against that and um, although he didn't want to do that because he didn't want to cause discord, but I did. I did. I pushed back. But that was because he taught me that. Um, and so, so it's difficult, but I think it's important. It's, 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 it's if, if you really believe, I mean, we do. We, people like me, whatever you take by that, lawyers, Muslims, um, non-Muslims, whatever you want to take by that, right? heritage, Pakistanis, Indians, whatever, right? Um, because we all want the same things, there's got to be a way to get there, right? There's got to be a way to get there. Um, and I think that the way to get there is to work out what your values really are and to ensure that people agree with them. I mean, I, I, I um, remember having a conversation with a parent of... So my kid used to play Sunday League football, right? He was little when he was like... 10, 11 years old, and I was sitting, I was on the edge of a football field, and um, one of the dads, right, one of the kids' dads, invited me to an EDL march. What? Yeah. <laughs> because, but, and when I said, are you, you, you sure? You want me to come? And he goes, yeah, but Ty, you're not like them. You're not like the others. And you'll be, I said, do you know the EDL wants to, like, I'm like their target? And he says, no, it's other people, right? And it's, this is the importance, because... Because our many, many weeks of standing in the freezing cold on the edge of a football, including through snow, because I don't know why I play in the bloody snow, but anyway, <laughs> right? Including the snow, and made him get to know me and me get to know him. And he saw his fellas like me. 
he stands for what I stand for, and I stand for what he stands for. But because of his whatever social political position, mm. he'd run affinity with the EDL, because he saw me as one of them, right? He invited me to a march. Now, he probably understood more about what I believed in than what the EDL believed in, right? Mm. And that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, is that actually, when we communicate with each other properly and we understand each other, we understand we're all the same. Are you guys still friends? Well, we've, kids have changed schools. <laughs> I would be, I would be, but the kids have changed schools. Um, you kind of brought this up, so I'm going to bring it up. Um, when are you running for MP? Yeah, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, it, it's, I'm, I'm not. And, and the main reason for that is that I've had conversations with many people from many different political complexions about this. And um, what I've been asked to do is to drop certain advocacy points because it will enhance my political career. That doesn't make sense to me. This doesn't make sense to me. And so therefore, um, unless there's a political party out there that can uh, mould itself to my view, I'm not interested. And I don't mean that in sort of an arrogant way. I mean, I stand for what I stand for. Right. What do I stand for? I stand for uh, equality. Um, I stand for... Uh, rights for individuals. I stand for the lowest in terms of economic benefit in society being raised up, whether they're white, black, brown. I, sa I stand for better NHS. I stand for uh, a better economic system. I stand for um, all of the things that a politician... Are you sure you're not running? Uh, I stand for all <laughs> of the things that a politician should stand for, mm -hmm. but I also stand for British values and I also stand for equality and the rule of law applied equally to everybody. And a lot of our politicians and political parties aren't prepared to do that. That's the bit where we fall by the wayside. And so you say, you, you see, this is a problem because in order to be able to be a politician, I will be told that I can't stand for that and I can't say that freely. I'm not prepared to do that. Right. Are you saying basically you can't be a politician in the UK in 2023 and stand for all those things? I say you can't be a member of the current political parties in the UK with our current political system and say those things openly without getting in trouble with your political leadership. Um, so there's one last question. The Gambia. The Gambia. Selfies. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> so really interesting. So I was at um, the African Commission of People and Human Rights, and we were litigating. I don't obviously want to say the state, but I was litig litigating against the state on a death penalty issue. And um, part of... So we, wherever I go and wherever legal work I do, we do it in the British way, in, in what I mean by that to an English standard which is a robust, good standard, usually higher than many other jurisdictions. And so part of that is to give your opponent the paperwork that um, they need to understand your arguments so they can have a fair chance of preparing a proper argument, which apparently isn't how it happens everywhere. But anyway, so in the Gambia, in this beautiful hotel where the commission was based, um, bright sunshine, palm trees, and, you know, it's like a safari. There's animals and monkeys all over the place, like literally in the trees. And I went looking for the military lawyers for the other side. They had military lawyers. And I saw uh, my opponents taking selfies with monkeys in the background. And so I walked up to them and politely, English politely, right? Remember, I'm an Englishman, right, Yorkshireman. Stood next to them waiting for them to finish their selfies. And they were like, they didn't realise I was a tourist, right? So I had this folder with me. And um, they started laughing and bringing me into their little joke and they were taking selfies and, um, and, I said, <laughs> and, and, and it, was, it was nice, it was funny and I was, I was going along with it because why not, you know, we're lawyers and we're just doing what we're doing. 
And then after they finished, they were, I stood there and they were like looking at me a bit like, why are you still stood here? And I was like, oh yeah, by the way, I'm the lawyer you're gonna go up against in the court in a minute. And I've got this bundle of papers from you for you. They were so embarrassed because they just humiliated themselves in front of me. And um, the lawyer suddenly turned into like a military officer and said, don't need any help from you. Thank you very much. And I know who you are. And I was like, okay, so I walked away. But then like 20 minutes later, really sheepishly, he sent his assistant to come and say, um, Mr. Ali, can we have those papers? <laughs> Like, of course you can. I did want to say, can we have a selfie afterwards, but I thought I'd leave it. It's brilliant. <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming in to speak with us and, and, and talking about everything that we talked about. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. This episode of The Big Picture is produced for Middle East Eye. Thank you to Hossam Sarhan for filming and Anas Ala for graphics. And thanks to you for listening. If this episode struck a chord with you or if you disagreed with what was said, we want to hear from you. So you can reach me on Twitter at MohammedWasHere or by email at mh at MiddleEastEye.org. You can also watch all of our episodes in video format on our YouTube channel. If you like this, please consider giving us a rating because it goes a long way and helps us reach new audiences. Until next time, salam.